Hey guys, this is Hunter Levine, and thank you for checking out the Captain's Collective podcast. In today's episode, Josh Wells and I sit down with the Florida Keys guide and all-around great angler, Bo Basso. Bo has been fishing the Keys since he was a little kid, and like many of the residents in the Keys, he was running around in his whitey tighties, except Bo was chasing bonefish with a fishing rod. And since those days, Bo has risen up to be one of the prominent guides in Isla Mirada. You might have heard of Bo since he was a founder of the television show Silver Kings. If you haven't seen that show, you need to go check it out. It is an incredible show with some awesome shots of tarpon fishing. More importantly, Bo is one of the most generous and passionate guides that I have ever met. And in this episode, we talk about guarding that passion, what makes great guides and fishermen, and of course, targeting tarpon and bonefish. I hope that you enjoy this episode as much as we enjoyed our time with Bo. If you do, please take a moment to subscribe to our podcast on iTunes, Spotify, Stitcher, or wherever it is that you listen to these things. And it also goes a long way if you take some time just to share the podcast. We hope that you enjoy this awesome conversation and interview. This is The Captain's Collective. Success is a gift. Excellence is the only thing to strive for. Uh, he, 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 right. tried to eat it. he tried to eat it. Hit him, hit him, hit him, hit him. He got him. He's on it. Got uh, two butt caps off the rods, filled them with tequila. We took a shot and out we went. There, there ain't no getting into it after that. It's you're, you're hooked. It's a bad habit. And all the time, flips the, he's standing there ready to go for a tarpon. Anytime he says, "You talk so much, you're like a senator." Hey, Bo, thanks so much for being on the podcast today, hanging out in the Keys in your nice Airstream here. Uh, you've been really hospitable so far. So could you start off just by telling us a little bit about how you got here today? Yeah, sure. It's an interesting story. You kind of always end up where you're supposed to be, I think, in one way or another. But um, when I was six months old, my family uh, came down to Isla Mirada for the first time. My grandparents had a timeshare that they hadn't used for five or six years and my dad's father had recently passed away so my grandmother was trying to convince him that hey look this is a good thing for you guys to do you know go down take the family into Isla Mirada go to the Keys check this place out and uh, we were fortunate enough to where living in Jupiter we were only two and a half hours away from Isla Mirada so if my dad you know had to he could pick up go back to work for two or three days come back down to the Keys and meanwhile, the place that we were staying at, the timeshare, became like a you know, revolving door. You know, grandparents, aunts, uncles, cousins. It just was like one of those things where it was like a family vacation. And uh, it ended up becoming uh, an annual trip that we did every single year. It was always for the month of June, whether, you know, my dad was there every day or not, you know, because most of the time he wasn't. But we were there you know i was there eventually my brother my sister you know and of course my mom was always there you know looking after us so um it just became a, a situation where i was the oldest i was by myself and the only thing that i could do was fish which i loved anyways and uh, that's how the whole florida keys isla Mirada, how i got here how the you know passion for this particular location was sparked into my mind was just through this annual vacation with my parents that started um, in the early 80s. 
And how did you get into fishing? So the fishing aspect of it is interesting. My grandfather, who unfortunately I never got to meet, my namesake, um, he would make it to where, as an attorney, he would have all these appointments that would line up, right? And he, and any time that he tried to get away to go fish, my grandmother would always be on him about it. So he ended up having two or three of his friends that would call, and when they saw that the tide was right up there in Palm Beach County to go snook fishing in Jupiter Inlet, they would call three or four days in advance, book all of the appointments for that morning, and then at 4.30 p.m. the day before, they would call and cancel all the appointments, and then my grandfather would go and play hooky and go fish the next morning. So it was my grandfather that was obsessed with fishing, and it became these trips to Lake Okeechobee that he took my dad and my uncle to and these fishing trips for Snook and Jupiter Inlet and, you know, all these different fishing adventures that got my dad through his father, you know, passionate about fishing. And then here I am today because my father and his passion with, you know, fishing. And it was just when we would be down in the Keys, I would be on the dock catching mangrove snappers on a Zebco rod, you know, in my snoopy whitey tidy underwears and my dad would be you know waiting along the shoreline throwing flies at bonefish and i would watch him dog cussing these things slapping his <laughs> rod down you, you know and it just ingrained into my mind you know that this is like i just wanted it so bad just from watching his repeated failure you know so that's that's really how the fishing part of it got me was i think you know obviously my dad and i fishing jupiter inlet and duke going on all these little trips together but mostly it was sitting on the dock catching these little snappers watching my dad repeatedly fail that made me like determined you know to be able to catch these fish and that explains the tradition of you wearing Snoopy Whitey tidies. That's when right. You go out. That's why you're wearing them right now. It's kind of weird. That's right. That's it's my go-to. And, uh, and how did you get into the guiding aspect of fishing? So the guiding aspect of fishing was strictly because from the time that I was a very, very young child, my dad, you know, God bless him. I mean, he had three of us kids. He put us all through school. We never wanted anything. We never needed anything. But, you know, he never spent money on guided trips. And so for me, at a very young age, I always felt like guides had supernatural powers. Literally, I felt like when you go out with a guide, he goes to the spot and the fish are there. End of story. You know what I mean? It's like, this is what you do. And so I just felt like I was like, I am going to be a guide. I am going to be the guy that is on the fish because for so long I was out there with my dad. I mean, it makes me sick to think that in the early 80s, and the early 90s when the fishing was still so good down here that we were sitting there hiring a guy that mowed the lawn at the timeshare that we stayed at to take us fishing. Literally, that's that's who we hired. We paid him 250 bucks, and, you know, he didn't have a captain's license, and he took us out on his 19 Carolina skiff with his 90 Mariner two-stroke engine, and we ran out and caught trout on popping corks in the backcountry of Isla Mirada, you know? And meanwhile, there's, you know, thousands and tens of thousands of bonefish in the backcountry and, you know, all this unbelievable fishery that ended up substantially, you know, diminishing after, you know, the early 2000s with it just every year between freezes and water quality issues. So, you know, it just breaks my heart to think like, oh, my God, you know, and even at that time, I was just like, you know, I want to go out with a bonefish guide. I, and my dad's like, well, then you better pick a job that you're going to make a lot of money. Yeah. <laughs> That's what he would always tell me. 
And then you picked a job where you get to be the bonefish guy. It was one, one of the way. questions that you guys asked me specifically, you know, briefing me for this podcast was, you know, like, why did you choose guiding? And the main reason why was because it's so expensive to flats fish, right? And if you're passionate about flats fishing, how can you do it every day? You make it your job. If you're passionate about golf and you want to golf every day, how can you do it? Well, you know, you could be a caddy, you know, where you get to go and play a little bit and have some fun with these pros. You could be, you know, maybe a golf instructor. You could be a head pro at a golf course. You know, there's so it's like you, you kind of manipulate things. Yeah, sure. You know, you're not the guy that's sitting out on the patio smoking a cigar with your friends, drinking cocktails after 18 holes. You know, you're the guy that's maybe scrubbing the clubs or, you know, cleaning the cart. But you, you get what I'm saying. Yeah, you know? you're, you're on the grass. You're still there. You're yeah. still there. So it's even if you can only sniff it, you know, you're still there. <laughs> it's like that old saying, if you love what you do, you never work a day in your life. And some of that is true and some of that is not true because if you end up working and you truly want to make it a business and turn it into making money and then you're always pushing it and pushing it and pushing it to making money, then all of a sudden your passion becomes work and then you end up losing some of your passion because you're trying to make it a business, right? You know, if you're, if you're the ever long bachelor and you don't have a mortgage and you don't have a whole lot of bills and stuff and you can just go out every day if you want to fish if it's raining or the weather sucks you know and you end up you know saying oh don't worry about it we're not going to go today don't pay me you know that's a great life but the older that you get and then all of a sudden you know these bills start stacking up and you start trying to think to yourself how can i be more creative to make more money doing this how can i you know make more money so i can get a bigger house for my family or afford to put my kids through college or all this stuff and then all of a sudden Hurricane Irma hits and you don't get to work for three months and then you become really angry and spiteful and you know it's just it's hard the the passion thing is a fine line right if you if you follow your passion and you do a passion for your living you'll never work a, another day you know for the rest of your life but if you end up trying to turn your passion into a business inevitably there's going to be a loss of some of the passion whether you're steve jobs creating the first iphone and getting into these major arguments with people that are telling him you can't do this or you can't do that and you know you got to imagine some of those days when he walked home from that office or drove home or who the heck knows what he did to get home but it wasn't the same as when he was in his garage right oh, when yeah. the light bulbs were firing off in his brain and he was like we're gonna make this personal pc and we're gonna do this and we're gonna do that you know it's like all of a sudden you start having shareholders and you go public and right you know so you try to analogize it to something like that yeah. it's, it's not always just the passion the end you go off into the sunset holding hands you yeah, know what it, i mean it's, it's a fine line balancing that you know this is my job and i love it and i'm passionate about it but then stressing yourself out so much that you know it's not fun anymore and it's then so what do you true. do? You're stuck. You're stuck just working, doing something you don't want to do. If you don't have a backup plan, you are. Absolutely. <laughs> so how do you guard that passion? Because obviously you're a really passionate, fun, you know, easygoing guy. It's very obvious to me that you still love the water and being around the water. But how, how have you tried to guard that passion in your life? Well, I mean, I could tell you something right now. There's going to be some of the people that will listen to this that will be, you know, older than I am, you know, at 34 years old. There will be some of the people that will listen to this that will be younger than I am. So, the, you know, the message that I have for the younger group about guarding your passion is to always leave yourself a backup plan. And if I had it my way, I would have came immediately to the Keys at 18 years old with my captain's license and started guiding as soon as my my hands could handle it. I mean, I would have immediately, that's what I would have done. 
But because, you know, my dad had told me, hey, look, you know, this is the way it's going to go. You're going to go and get a four-year degree before you do anything like that. You know, it, they forced me to go to college. I did not want to go to college. And yes, I get it. You know, college is college. Education is whatever you want it to be, right? Because you could go and get some trade school degree where you learn how to weld or you learn how to be a marine mechanic. It doesn't really matter, right? You know, the bottom line is, is that if you make it to where all you have in life is guiding with no backup plan, you put yourself in a position to where when the rubber hits the road, if you do not guide, you cannot afford to support yourself, your family, your lifestyle. So, so much gets put on fishing. It's like the weight of the world is on fishing. And let me tell you something, fishing was never meant to be stressful. Fishing was never meant to have the weight of the world on its shoulders. It is the antithesis of that. It is made to be a release, an escape from the world, an escape from the mortgage payment that you, you know, that you're thinking about, you know, the college for your kids. It's supposed to be get out there, lose cell phone service, take a couple deep breaths, forget about it, right? Get a release. And so when you leave yourself with no option but to be a fishing guide, I really think that it puts a lot of pressure on you to produce and it's like it's it's not necessary right if you're a young kid and you want to be a guide the best thing you can do is like I said go to a trade school have some sort of a fallback plan you know go and get a four-year degree who cares what it is you know just so that way you have it God forbid right look if you want to go to law school it doesn't matter what your four-year degree is all you need is a four-year degree and to take the LSAT so if you're 35 and you're burnout from guiding and all of a sudden one of your clients offers you an opportunity to work at his law firm then you could just say to yourself, well, you know what? I've already got this four-year degree. Let me take the LSAT and see how I do. It just gives you options, right? Instead of putting yourself in this tiny little box with your back against nothing but things you can't control, the economy, creating people wanting to come down here or not wanting to come down here, you know, the ecosystem, whether what's going on with the state of Florida and big sugar and all these different water issues that we're having, right? You know, the hurricanes, it's like, when you're a guide, you have all these things that are completely out of your control, and yet you are depending on it to be your sole income. And that is very scary. You know, when you're, you lose control, it's not like you just show up at the office or you do this or you do that, you know? So it's always nice to have some sort of a little security blanket, like whatever education it might be, where if the rubber hits the road and you end up having, you know, these ecological issues economical issues that you have something to fall back on that makes total sense to me and just thinking about too the fact that clients can probably feel that stress if you're out there because you're trying to connect with them and talk with them and have them you know have a great time out on the boat so i would imagine that that would be something that would be really easy for a client to pick up on it if you love it or not or if you're still passionate about it or not sure and i think a lot of days too uh, you know, and don't get me wrong, this is a slippery slope because sometimes people see that the wind's blowing seven miles an hour and they're trying to cancel a charter on you, you know, and it's just, you just want to like <laughs> grab them by the head and, you know, take care of it. But I mean, it's, it's a slippery slope because if the weather is really going to be bad and you think that there is a small percentage chance that you're going to have success, it's nice to be able to say to these people, you know, let's push it off let's go tomorrow or let's go the next day instead of sitting there and thinking to yourself, wow, you know, 
this day that I lose today is going to be $800 I'm never going to get back. Because, right, when, when February 2nd, 2019 passes, there will never be another February 2nd, 2019. So that $800 that you could have made is now gone. And you lose that forever. And so when you start thinking like that and then you go out there and you're getting wet because it's rough or the weather's really bad and you're not catching any fish and it's like all of a sudden it's like these little things start hitting you one at a time at a time and then all of a sudden you have that meltdown where you're, you know, you're, you're mad not because you know, of any real reason other than, you know, that you're stressed out economically, financially, you know, the weather's bad. You got this guy out here on a day when you probably shouldn't have him out here. And a lot of that can be avoided if, you know, you have one of these backup plans or if you live, you know, within your means. And as you keep that passion close, it it probably just helps you have so much more fun with the whole process. And I know that you like to get out on the water, even on days that you don't have clients in. Uh, What's the thing that you love to do when it's just you out there? Well, I'll tell you, it is funny because over the past probably five years, it is rare that it is just me. I mean, because you work so many days, fortunately, to be able to be booked that much. But, you know, on on your days where, you know, you're off, it's like, you know, I got to go to the bank. I've got to go to the post office. I've got to answer, you know, 14 or 15 emails that have been sitting around for two or three days that I still haven't gotten to. So, you have this laundry list of things to do and you end up not spending near as much time on the water as you used to on your days off. But, you know, if I have a day off, um, typically, you know, I like to try, unless the weather's beautiful, I like to avoid leaving at the crack of dawn. You know, I mean, I like to have kind of like a slower start, get one of my good friends that I haven't had some time to catch up with or my wife or something, you know, like that take it easy, go out there, you know, and just spend whatever, three, four hours. There's not like a designated amount of time where I'm not going to be out there all day or I'm not going to be sitting there trying to grind it out and catch this fish or that fish. You know, you just kind of go with the flow. If it looks like, you know, the conditions are going to be great to go and look for tarpon because you're that time of the year, then great. Let's go and look around and see if we can find some. If, you know, it looks like it's We've got an hour and a half left of daylight, and we want to go pull around until sunset. Okay, fine. Let's stay close to home instead of burning a bunch of time on the clock, and let's throw some beers in the cooler and see if we can find some bonefish close to home. You know, so I think the answer to that is it's it's you start to not force anything. The older that you get, the more successful that you get with guiding on these heavy, heavy annual, you know, days of booking 300 days, whatever, 270 days. A year it ends up being like okay when I have a day to go do it myself I'm not gonna force it I'm not gonna wake up and go crazy I'm just gonna go out and try to enjoy it is there a certain species that you like more than another well it's so hard because the in Isla Mirada we've been known for the longest period of time for having the biggest bonefish in most parts of the world um, obviously Biscayne Bay has some incredibly large bonefish um, you know, the Bahamas in certain sections. But, you know, for the most part, Isla Mirada is like one of the big bonefish spots in the world, especially sight fishing, tailing fish. And, you know, over the years, they've taken a beating um, just between the water quality stuff and the, uh, the freeze. But we are starting to see some of these fish come back. Um, and for me, I think it just goes back to my childhood, you know, stalking these big fish, these big tailing fish in shallow water that are extremely spooky. And that more times than not, when you throw a fly at them, they run, you know, to the Bahamas 
versus eating it. And it's just that constant failure of not catching those fish and stalking them right around town, really close where you could, you know, hit a driver or something to the road. It just, it makes it to where, you know, you're like, oh, you know, it's just, it's, it's never a guarantee. It makes you want it even more. So I think for my roots, if I had to answer that question, it would be these big downtown bonefish that really are what uh, kept me in this career, that love for that particular fish. So walk us through a little bit of how you try to prep for a guide. Is there any type of rituals you have or any type of scouting techniques that you're willing to share? Well, I mean, it's, it is interesting because whenever you're, you know, prepping for people, I mean, you always look at the big things, right? You know, the weather, what it's going to be like, you know, the tide is extremely important in the Keys. Anybody that's a good, you know, fishing guide in the Keys knows that tide is like probably 80% of it, you know, water temperature is another big one. So you start looking at wind direction, all these different factors, because you have to designate some sort of game plan, you know, for the next day, whatever you're going to be doing. But it's funny because that game plan that you generate in your mind is only good for, I mean, what it's worth in all reality. It's a game plan because the best that I've done as a guide has been with these improvised I'm driving around and all of a sudden, boom, you stop somewhere and, and you find the mother load, right? Or, or, or you're running from A to B and you run over a giant wad of tarpon and you come flying off plane and all of a sudden you're like, wow, here they are. You know what I mean? So it's like, it's never, yeah, sure. History repeats itself. Keeping a journal is awesome to be able to say, this is where I was on this day with these conditions and go back and trying to repeat it. But I can't tell you how many times I go back and try to repeat it and not see a single fish. So you have to have that kind of improv, you know, lifestyle for a fishing guide because, you know, you through multiple days, years on the water, you end up having this like bank of intuition that is inside of you. And you just all of a sudden, you know, you get in the boat one morning and it drives you crazy. The people look at you and they say, so where are we going, Cap? And you're like, oh, my God, this is going to be a long day. You know, and I'll just tell them, I'll be like, well, I don't know where we're going. And they're like, what do you mean? You know, I'm like, honestly, <laughs> right now I woke up. I thought the wind was going to be out of the southeast and it's actually out of the northwest. This front came in a little bit early. So I, I really I have no idea. We're just going to go and we're going to take a little drive and stop at a few spots that feel right on the way out. And literally that is what you'll do. So there's not so much um, a tradition or some sort of, you know, a way that you start every trip other than when the weather is really consistent or maybe, you know, during tarpon season when you know the fish are migrating and, you know, you have kind of a little bit more of a game plan that you get into a groove with. But otherwise, it's a lot of improv along the way. So you got, you know, you have your day, planned out your day, you got it, you know, you're there. You have this guy that he's saved up for six months to come down and fish with you for a day. Um, what's What do you think? are some key factors for a good guy that's going to make that guy want to come back make him enjoy his day oh man i'll tell you what i love the guys that have a ton of money and they didn't have to save up for six months to come and fish with me <laughs> i'm telling you because the guys that come down and they are saving up to fish with you for that one day i mean i will tell you something i always feel like fishing guide as a job description there's somewhere fishing is involved in there catching fish right your fishing guide it's like so 
when I have somebody, you know, that's got, you know, X, a ton of money, works for a big company, gets to throw flies at tarpon 20 or 30 days a year, do I want to catch that guy a fish? Absolutely. And do I want to be on fish all day long? Absolutely. But when you get that guy that comes down and you know he's been saving his pennies to get down and fish that one day with you for 800 bucks, I mean, oh my God, it is the ultimate, it is the ultimate stress for me. If you, so that's kind of the answer. Some of the answer to your question is, you know, a guide that cares that much, that it affects him that much or her that much that, you know, he or she is going to be in a situation where like they want to catch their angler that fish so bad now i mean it's it can be a good thing or a bad thing too because a lot of times you know it's like you want it for the person so bad that you you know you get frustrated and you lose your cool and but i mean in my opinion i think that you know good guides have a passion being the first thing patience being the second thing because you really have to be patient and you know, on top of probably all of this in front of number one would be a good people person because I will never forget um, when I first started guiding down here and I wrote Flip Pallet an email, you know, like I never expected him to return my email and all of a sudden I got a phone call within about four minutes and I got, oh, I was crazy. (laughs) I mean, my heart dropped. I couldn't talk. I felt like I just got the hottest girl to go to the dance with me, you know, and and he, he called me. I picked the phone up. I couldn't believe it was him. And he just told me, he said, don't forget, you know, that fishing is an entertainment business. It is all about, you know, entertaining and entertaining these people and making sure that they have a good time. And so, you know, to be a good people person, at least, you know, when the weather's not great, things aren't lining up, that you can still connect with somebody on a personal level and make them feel like they got something out of the trip, right? Whether you tell them about the history of the spot that you're at or the environment, or you talk to them about a particular cycle of, you know, this bird migration or what it sounds silly, but, you know, give them some value, right. For their money and for their time, because, you know, whether it's a kid that saved up for six months to go and fish with you, or whether it's a guy that's at the office, both of them are taking time away from their family or from something else that they could be doing. So when they're with you, you know, you want to try to give them value for their time and for their money and make them feel like, wow, you know, I'm just happy that I spent the day with this guy, you know, instead of feeling like, wow, you know, I just got yelled at for seven and a half hours and didn't even have any good <laughs> fishing, you yeah. know? Oh, yeah. Yeah. That's some great advice from Flip. And it's funny because on our second episode, we interviewed a former Marine who's now a fishing guide. And he talked about the pressure of guiding fish. And it's funny because I think when when you're not in that situation, it's easy just to think, man, this guy comes out and he just hangs out on the boat all the time and just kind of knows where the fish are. And they don't really think that it's a job that has a lot of pressure, but it's, it's been a common theme as we've talked to different guides that there's a lot of pressure that comes with it. There's a lot of, uh, you know, interpersonal skills that have to be developed. It sounds like just great advice that flip gave you. What, what's some, uh, mistakes that you see some young guides making if, if they were giving you an email and you were giving them a call, uh, what would you tell them? And I have wrote and written lots of these emails because you know i get a lot of inquiries from younger kids that are talking about guiding whether it's because they saw the show and saw that there were some younger kids that are doing this stuff and that it makes it possible you know the dream of reality but i think the biggest problem that i see with these younger guys coming into the uh, business is that they're so hungry for it that you know they automatically just throw themselves into exposure 
you know, whether it's starting some crazy social media account or, you know, pushing this big, ridiculous, like, facade about Captain so-and-so and, you know, always, like, acting like they're bigger than they are. I mean, I think that the best thing that you can do as a new guide is to keep your mouth shut, keep your head down, work hard, let your customers speak for you, and, you know, yeah, I get it. You know, everybody has to have a social media account, and, you know, you have to advertise for yourself, and if you don't believe in yourself, who's going to believe in you? I get all that. I'm also a proponent for that thought process. But I have to tell you, you know, it's like when you sit there and you start some charter business called, you know, tight lines charters or it's just like all of these ridiculous names that these people are coming up with you know and then they're going off on these social media tirades posting this and posting I mean it's just like oh my I mean I can't handle it you know because I'm thinking to myself I'm like wow you know like when I first started the only GPS that you had was one of the ones that was like a black and white and you an arrow with the latitude and longitude, right? You know, and like we, you know, you didn't have a trolling motor that was anything other than one of these little tiller ones, you know, that never really worked most of the time. And, you know, you didn't have uh, like the same kinds of uh, like internet, social media, Google Earth, all these different things, you know. So I look at myself and I try to say, you can't be jaded, you know, because you didn't have these things at the beginning and look at these people and say to yourself, you know, oh, you know, I'm going to talk down to these guys because, you know, I didn't have these kinds of advantages when I was their age to propel my business to where it could be in years instead of, you know, a decade, like it took most of us, you know, to build a, a strong business. But, you know, at the same time, I just really believe that, if you can keep your head down and you can let the people that end up fishing with you talk for you, brag for you, and you be the one to always chalk it up to being lucky or finding something out by, you know, stumbling upon it and just always being humble. I think that humility is such a rare quality that you see in young people nowadays that when you find it, it's so shocking that the older guides that hate newcomers, all of a sudden they see this like humble young guy coming into it that doesn't have a $70,000 boat and a $70,000 pickup truck and is posting something on social media every day. And all of a sudden they see this kid and they're like, I want to help him. And now, you know, you get a mentor, you get a friend, you get someone that's giving you trips instead of somebody that's sitting there shaking their head every time they see you because you're beating them to the shrimp tank or you're beating them to the spot or you're parking in the place that he likes to park out at, at the boat ramp. All these stupid, you know, reasons that are juvenile, but at the same time, you know, have a, a way of pushing these old timers off instead of attracting them to you. Yeah, me, me and Hunter being young guys, we... I think we see that all the time, you know, coming into especially a new situation, whether it be fishing or anything, uh, you know, come in, there's older guys here. They've been doing it since before we were born probably, you know, and you, you can't go into that situation acting entitled, you know, like they owe you something because they don't, you know, I mean, sure. It'd be nice, you know, and you work hard and, and they come down and give you a hand, but we've, we always found that it's, you know, come in humble and willing to learn and they'll usually help you out. Yeah, and it's a good saying, too, this old Captain George Wood that's probably hated, you know, more than most people because he was so hard 
on his clients and he was always in a bad mood. But, you know, the older he's gotten, the more he's tamed out. And, you know, he always tells me every time I talk to him, don't forget, there's someone before you and there's someone after you and there's someone where you are right now. And so, you know, you always try to keep that into perspective, right? You know, there's someone, you know, that was here doing this before you. So when you ever start getting proud or you ever start feeling like you're the big swinging, you know, you know what? It's like whenever that happens, you know, you have to remember, look, there was someone here before you that was paving this road, whether it was fighting for a particular license or whether it was fighting to keep this particular section of water open that someone wanted to close down or whether it was, you know, pioneering these flies or the reels that you're using that are capable of fighting these fish without breaking down, you know, designing the rods, whatever. There were all, there's always somebody before you and then there's always somebody after you, right? You know, a guy that you know, maybe he's on the ass end of his career and he's, you know, in a different spot mentally that he just hates these younger people because they're taking away business from him. And so I think that, you know, if you can be, you know, if you can be as empathetic as you possibly can, trying to put yourself into someone else's shoes before you react, I just think you can gain a lot from that, a lot of respect from people. And also, you know, I mean, it's, said multiple times you know in the bible i mean you know it's like you never want to act on anger and you know a lot of times whenever somebody disrespects you whether you're 19 and starting a guiding career or whether you're 75 and you're on your total way out of fishing altogether professionally you know when somebody disrespects you or if you feel disrespected you know then you end up getting angry and then you know then you end up saying things or doing things that you're going to regret and, and it becomes this whirlwind of problems. So I think the best thing you can always do is just try to say to yourself, there's someone before me, there's somebody after me, there's someone where I am right now. You know, how would each one of these people feel and where is this guy right now that I'm dealing with? You know, and then it just it puts things into perspective a little bit more. Yeah, that, that's some great advice. We talked a little bit at lunch about mentorship, and that's one of the things that we've had a lot of fun with this podcast, just going around and hanging out with different captains, learning from them, hearing their takes on different things. And what do you think makes a good mentor? If someone's out there and they're listening to this and they're like, you know what, I want to invest in this younger generation, what do you think makes a good mentor? Uh, mentorship is so tough because in this industry like we spoke about at lunch you know everyone keeps their cards really close to their chest so you're not in a position where someone wants to give up their formula right you know for success that you know that you don't want to tell someone where the fish are you don't want to tell them what tide to be there at you know it's there's all these things that people keep secretive because the guiding industry really all you have is your um you know your personal knowledge right your intellectual property your flies your spots the way that you think so if you give that to somebody else then you don't have anything you know your brand is diminished so i think you know when you're looking for a, somebody to mentor you i think the most important thing to look at first is is this person a good person right you know because let me tell you something there's a lot of really good fishing guides that are not great people you know so you look at it and you say to yourself you know look fishing is important i want to learn from the best of the best just like anyone else does but at the same time you know put the you know the horse in front of the cart and and say you know is this somebody that i'm going to want to have a long-term relationship with you know, and if the answer is yes, then, you know, after you check that box, then you say, you know, is this guy passionate about fishing? You know, is he, 
respected in the community, right? Because, you know, you are who you associate yourself with. And so it's all these little questions that you want to, you know, ask yourself when you're looking for a mentor, or I think even when mentors are looking for a mentee, because a lot of these older guys that are lonely and don't have anybody around anymore, whatever reason, you know, they're looking for the same thing. They're looking for the youngster that is humble. They're looking for the youngster that has a good you know, take on life. That's a hard worker. That's passionate. You know, so it, it goes both ways. Just switching gears a little bit, I'd love to hear a little bit more about how you did get involved beyond guiding in tournaments and also television. So you kind of have both those backgrounds as well. So that's a lot on top of just being a, a guide as well. Could you tell us just how that came about? Sure. Well, I can tell you the uh, the first tournament that I ever fished um, professionally as a captain, as a guide, was in 2006. It was in the Don Holly um, Tarpon Tournament. I was actually uh, already booked with one of my friends down here. She lived here full time, and uh, I had her booked for like three or four days the following week. My cell phone rang. It was a tournament director, and she said, I've got a gentleman here. His guide is deathly ill, and he's not able to fish this tournament next week. He waited until the last minute to see if he was going to feel better, and now I've got an angler that doesn't have a guide. Are you available? And so I was on the boat with this female client of mine, and I said, you know, I said, well, what do you, you know, what do you think? Is it okay? And she said, do it, do it. So the first tournament I fished, I fished with someone I'd never met before, having never guided in a fly tarpon tournament. And uh, it ended up being, you know, a very stressful experience because, you know, you're one of 25 boats, invitation only. And it's not like the guy's name goes up on the board by itself, right? If the angler was the only person that had their name associated with a score, I think you could feel a lot better because people <laughs> could look on that sheet and they could kind of say, now, who did he fish with again? <laughs> and then, it, you know, because most of the time people don't know who everybody's fishing with. But all of a sudden you go on here and you look on that sheet and it says Basso Sherb. And you're like, oh, that's what Bo fished with them. They got skunked today. Yeah, and then all of a sudden, you know, the pressure really starts to, to get on you. But that was the first tournament that I ever fished was with Bert Sherb in 2006. So you got a guy. You've Have you met this guy before? Never met you him never before. never met him? Never, never, fished, never fished, him. fished a practice day, nothing. And for people listening to this that don't know very much about tarpon fishing, that is a very, especially with the fly rod, that's a very, it's a team, big-time team effort. Totally. So to come in with somebody totally new, you don't know him from Adam. How did that – did you guys click eventually towards the end? Well, fortunately enough, uh, he had fished this particular tournament, you know, forever. You know, Bert Sherb is a gentleman's name. He's from Chicago. He's in commercial real estate. But he ended up being an incredible man to fish with because he had fished down here in the 70s, right, with, like, Buddy Grace and – Jimmy Albright and Jack Brothers. So the whole time we're out on this boat, he's telling me, you know, all these stories about, you know, he told me a story about Harry Spear when they had this bumblebee fly that they kept in this box that they were teasing him about or something at the upstairs bar at Papa Joe's. He told me this whole story about this fly that they had in this little box and it ended up being a total spoof. So, you know, he just caught me up to speed in five days of fishing this tournament. He gave me more history at 21 years old than I would have ever had imagined. I mean, so it ended up being an incredible experience because I wasn't taking some newbie 
that had the expectations of winning the tournament, right? You know, I had a guy that had a respect for the history of the game, had fished these tournaments plenty of times, knew that his guide was sick, and he was getting a fresh greenhorn tarpon guide. So my expectations were higher than his, and it was... I mean, it would, this would never happen in today's day and age, but it was an incredible experience that ended up being super beneficial to me. Um, and he never put me under an immense amount of stress or questioned anything that I was doing, which is another shocking thing that you would never get in the tournaments today if you had some greenhorn kid guiding some, you know, old school angler. And do you plan to do more tournament fishing as you go on? or? I probably would say I'd do a lot less. The past three years I have not fished any of the tournaments except the one that we put on for the television show and that was just part of being part of the show you know having to fish that tournament but this year I'll be fishing the gold cup again for the first time in a while and it's because one of my clients is a dear friend of mine and he's been here my whole career supporting me and he's begged me and begged me and begged me to fish this tournament with him and I've turned him down I mean even with all these ridiculous emoji images of crying cats and all these things that he sends me you know please how can you say no to this you know please so finally this year I said yes but um, I think that personally moving forward I probably will not be fishing many of the tournaments but you know it's another one of those questions that you were asking me about you know through this this um, podcast was you know, like, what's the reasons why you start fishing tournaments then? You know, here you are telling us that you're not going to be fishing as many of these tournaments anymore. Well, why do you start fishing tournaments in the first place? And the main reason why is, you know, competitiveness, right? You know, it doesn't matter if you're a guy or a girl, you know, you, if you have that competitive drive in you, there's something that makes you want to compete to measure yourself, right? To say, how good am I compared to these other teams, right? Under the same conditions, how will I fare against these other groups of people that are, you know, my peers, people I look up to, heroes, that kind of stuff. And so that's one of the main reasons why, you know, you want to fish tournaments is to measure yourself against these other people. And then another one of the reasons is because it's advertising, right? When you're a young new guide and you've kept your mouth shut and you've put your head down and you've worked hard what better advertising than to go out and throw your name up on a scoreboard and do better than some of these people that have been fishing for 20 or 30 years, right? You know, guiding for that long. So it's a great way to put yourself out there without being proud or without bragging. You know, you're in a tournament, you're turning in a scorecard. You're not sitting there writing up in magic marker what your score is on the board. You know, you're just, you're participating in a tournament. And so it ends up making your phone ring a lot more when you do well, and it's great networking, and you meet people. So that's the benefits of the tournament stuff. But the drawbacks are that, you know, like I told you at the very beginning of the interview, you know, it's it, fishing was never meant to be stressful. It was the antithesis of that. And so when you go out there and you compete, it's very stressful. And it's not the same as fishing a regular day. You know, one of the biggest regrets that I have when I when we film Silver Kings TV you know is like that that some of the drama stuff that they put on there whether it's me chewing out Paul Nude or whether it's Ed Young the pastor and I getting into an argument everybody wants to be the first one to sit there and point fingers and say oh this guy's an asshole or whatever you know what I mean <laughs> typical keys guide well let me explain something to you you know 
you ever watch college football? Do you ever watch NFL football? You ever watch college basketball? You ever watch any sport? Okay, 97% of those coaches, when they get ahead of the hold of their headset and something goes wrong, you want to be nowhere near that guy. Batteries are flying. They are grabbing players by helmets, screaming at them in their face. You think they're doing that in practice? You think they're sitting there screaming at them, grabbing them by their helmets, throwing stuff around? No way. They're sitting there and they're preparing for it. And they're helping these kids and saying, what are you guys doing? Can't you see this? You know what I mean? When we're playing this particular package of defense, you can't sit there, you know, and, and go off sides on us when we're on fourth and one. You know what I mean? You guys have to have steel, you know, nerves of steel, you know, and they're sitting there explaining to them. But then what happens? It's fourth and one. Okay. And then all of a sudden they're in the game and the kid steps over the line. And now all of a sudden they end up going first and whatever. And the coach goes haywire on him and he throws stuff and he's screaming and he's so mad he can't see straight. That's the passion shining through, you know, and so everybody wants to be quick to judge. But, you know, unless you fished one of these tournaments before and unless you've been in that situation where, you know, you're at the Super Bowl and you're trying to win or, you know, you're, you're in the beginning stages and you've made it to the playoffs and now you have to start converting regularly to make it to the end and these shots are just getting dropped left and right and you know that it is not an endless supply. You know, that's one thing about flats fishing. When that tide gets to a certain level, those fish Game will over. disappear. Yep. It is over. So your window of opportunity is so small. And within that window of opportunity, whether it's an hour and a half or two hours, there's smaller windows. And I always tell people the same thing. Imagine that you're playing Pictionary or any other game where there's a little tiny clock with, a, with that alarm, with the beeper. And it goes beep, When the fish is coming, that shot within a shot, that timer starts, okay? The fish is, might be 100 feet away, but the beeping starts. And if you don't see the fish, and now the fish is 60 feet away, that timer's beeping a lot quicker, okay? And then all of a sudden, I'm having to push this person into getting the fly in front of the fish. And then all of a sudden, when they miss the first shot, now the timer is about to blow. And it is just... And all of a sudden, you're like you know we need to get the fly in the water somewhere in front of this fish and so then you're you're agitated you're speaking faster you're yelling because it's windy you know but it's all because you're in this competitive environment right trying to take somebody that has the ability to win because i do believe everybody has the ability to do well but you're trying to carve out of them that little bit of of you know i don't even want to say experience i mean you know that little bit of whatever it takes right to win you're trying to like grab that out of them and be like look you can do it you know i can get you to do it you know and so that's where that frustration and all that stuff comes in and, and that's one of the reasons why you know we showed those conversations and those moments throughout the series well in your defense you guys were sitting in front of a dock you did say here comes a northbounder <laughs> If I had a sounds, dollar for Sounds every nothing like oh turn me God. loose. I, <laughs> I, I laughed so hard yeah. when I saw that. It's the most common <laughs> one. I mean, to this day, I will get direct messages or Facebook messages or emails 
with nothing else but here comes a northbounder. <laughs> People will just send me one-liners in the subject like that with no other information involved. I mean, just in, you know, it doesn't matter yeah, if it's 3.30 in the morning or whatever. I always sit there and I laugh, and I'm like, at least somebody appreciates this. When, when you look back at the television show, what were some of your favorite parts about being on that endeavor? Yeah, my favorite parts, no doubt, of the show, the first and most favorite part uh, was filming with my dad right because I don't have kids right now who knows when I will my dad's father died at 62 my dad's 68 years old you know I mean I just think to myself what would I give to see my dad and his dad fishing together on a 22 minute long segment I mean I can't I don't know what I would give to see that to like have that and like I can't imagine how great it's going to be if I'm fortunate enough to have kids to be able to sit there and show my kids like this was your grandfather this is who he was like this is us laughing and this is us fishing for these fish and this is the guy you know what I mean that like that you never got to meet or hopefully they do get to meet him but that memory will be something that my kids or my nieces and nephews or whoever will always be able to take that and say this was your great uncle this was whoever in your family tree you know here he is and so it's that is my favorite part really of filming the show is that whether it's with you know my buddy George Martinez at the time filming these episodes or whether it's with you know my dad or it doesn't matter who it is you know it's like you always have those memories so that was the coolest part by far about filming the show and then the second coolest part was that the people that were involved in the show the the film crew Marty and James with KCHD Productions and Nikki Runnels, the uh, executive producer, my customer who came to me and we hashed out the idea for the show. You know, it, it's like my buddy Jeff Bloodworth that ran the camera boat. I mean, the memories that I have are not about any of the fish that we caught while we were filming the show. It was all of the chaos and the mess ups and all of the things that went wrong that at the time were so aggravating that now that you look back at it and are just absolutely hilarious. So those two things, you know, the memories that you always have. And then, of course, the experiences through filming itself, because the people that were involved in producing the show were so amazing. When you go back to that time when you guys were kind of coming up with the idea behind it, what were some of the things that you guys were dreaming up and throwing out there? What did you want the show to be? Well, Nikki, my customer, was on the boat, and uh, his family had just gotten out of a business, and so he was in between jobs, and he had the idea to revolutionize fishing television because he felt like fishing shows were nothing more than a 22-minute infomercial, that every time someone was holding a lure, shaking it in front of the screen, or somebody was, you know, sitting on the back of a tailgate of a truck going through their tackle box, he's just like, dude, fishing television is awful. I don't know if you've seen it lately. And I was just like, no, because I don't watch television. So he was like, well, I'm telling you, it's awful. He's like, we should come up with some sort of a show to like turn this thing around. I mean, this was all Nikki. I wasn't sitting there telling him, oh, we should do a TV show. So it was totally his his whole idea. And so then as we started talking about it and it became more of a reality that he was very serious about doing something like this. Then we started talking about, well, you know, tarpon would be a great fish to do a show on because the thing is, is that whenever you watch fishing television, if you can't see the fish, 
all it is is somebody casting it water. They strip and they come tight. They clear the line. There's no real action until the fish comes up to the boat and they, you get to see what it is or how big it is, right? But with tarpon, they're so big in the keys and the water is so clear that it doesn't matter if you hook the fish, catch the fish, lose the fish, whatever happens because the fish is there and the camera can see it, whether it's on a drone or whether a camera on a boat. Then all of a sudden that fish is there and you're watching the fish and then you see him track the fly and you watch him open his mouth and eat it. And then as soon as you strip tight to him, he makes a hundred yard run and comes flying out of the water. So it was like, this is a fish that we can film because even if you don't convert, you always have something that's exciting to show. And so we're like, okay, you know, tarpon fishing, we could do these tournaments. We start thinking about everything to make people interested in it, to give them like a reason to watch. They're emotionally invested and then all of a sudden we realize, I'm like, well, what the heck? I don't know anything about filming. What do you know about filming? And he's like, well, I don't know anything about filming, but we can figure <laughs> it out. And then I'm like, well, how are we going to get into these tournaments? I'm like, there's no way these people are going to let us film this stuff. Like, especially with me, like being some younger guy that everybody hates, like there's no way that they're going to let us film this tournament. And so then that's when I was like, you know what? I said, we should contact Rob Fordyce and see if he would be interested in being a part of this with us. And so Nikki and I said, absolutely. So we called Rob and we met at a little Mexican food restaurant in Homestead. And we sat down with them and said, look, you know, we would love for you to be a part of this series because, you know, we don't have the contacts in the film game like Rob did. He'd filmed with Jose Wahebe, he'd filmed with a lot of different people on different shows with Flip, you know, with Walker's Cake Chronicles. So he knew a lot more than we did, but he also had the clout. He also had the experience. He was a, you know, still is one of, you know, the top highest tarpon guides in the world, you know, I think. And so we ended up approaching Rob and said, hey, look, you know, what do you think? And he, you know, said, hey, I think it sounds good. And so he's the one that introduced us to the camera crew. And he's the one, you know, that paved a lot of the, the way for us, you know, getting into some of these tournaments and, and turning it into, you know, eventually what it became. So it was that's how the whole thing started. What were some of the big lessons that you learned from that season of life? Well, I think one of the big things that I learned is that, you know, you have to be more patient you know, with people, you know, you watch yourself on TV and you have, you know, some regrets on some of that stuff and you say, God, you know, this is how I really look like. I need to tone it down a little bit. So, you know, you learn those lessons. Um, and I think now more than ever, now that I'm not part of the show and I look back on it, you know, you also have to keep things into perspective, right? You know, I mean, there's people, you know, around the world that are starving or that, you know, don't have the opportunities that you have or live where you live and you're out there struggling catching a fish on, you know, for television and you end up having it ruin your whole month, you know, and you have a bad attitude and all these things that in the grand scheme of life mean nothing compared to what other people are dealing with. I think that that's something else that I learned that, you know, you have to keep things into perspective and you have to be able to say to yourself like, wow, you know, I can't let my emotions get the best of me always in these types of situations because there's bigger fish to fry in this world than you know catching a fish for a tv show so that's those are a couple of things yeah that's really helpful well as we wrap up we just wanted to throw out some fun kind of rapid fire questions on sure. tarpon and pick your brain on some stuff the informative <laughs> yeah a little rapid fire session here yeah. um what's your favorite way to target a tarpon 
I mean, I have to say, if I had it my way every single day and I knew the fish were going to swim all the time, it would be on the ocean in gin clear water because they're the hardest fish to feed. It's the most visual. Uh, you really get an appreciation for where the fish is coming from and how he reacts to the fly. Uh, it's just the most rewarding. You know, if I have a charter, I would rather be out back on a slick, calm day where I could get, you know, Ray Charles and his sister Helen Keller to catch a tarpon with a blindfold on. You know what I mean? It's like, it's that's where I want to be on a charter. But if I'm I might out be able there, to catch one there, you could. I promise you, you could on a calm day. But you know, the thing is, is that if I had to have it my way, like in that question you asked, it would be on the ocean in gin clear water, you know, throwing at those big strings of fish and trying to convince a single fish within a group to eat the fly. Setting up on those fish, uh, what would you say is your, if you could have one specific angle for a shot on a migrating fish like that, where would you want to put that shot? Where do you want, where do you want to be compared to the fish, and where would you want that fly to be compared to where that fish is going? Yeah, sure. I want to be at 10 o'clock, 10:30, 11 o'clock, throwing at a 45 degree angle. That's where I I think it's the best spot. You know, I mean, you get bites in all different ways, shapes, or forms. But if you can take that fly and cut the string at a 45-degree angle where the fly is swimming across the fish but still with the fish, it lends itself to a bite where the fish turns and you have a higher success, you know, ratio for actually coming tight. Because a lot of times if it's a 180-degree shot, you're steering straight down the barrel of the fish. He swims right at you, eats it, keeps swimming at you and you end up struggling coming tight. But whenever you get that 10.30, 10 o'clock, 11 o'clock shot where you can swim the fly 45 degrees across the fish's face, usually when he eats it, he eats it on a turn. And when he turns, all you do is hold on. You don't have to set the hook. You don't have to do anything. You just hold on. The fish comes tight. He makes one big kick. You try to put a little pressure on the line, clearing it, and the rest is history. We're both new to tarpon fishing. What is a lot of the common mistakes that you see new anglers make with tarpon fishing i mean i think that some of the most common mistakes that i see you know the biggest one is that you know the leader has to open okay i don't care if you're using a clear fly line a regular floating fly line i don't care what you're using the leader is your only separation between you and the fish so if that leader if you've got a 12 foot leader and that leader is collapsing on itself and the fly is behind the fly line on all your casts oh my i mean you better be out back in a, on a calm day because those fish on the ocean they're just not going to eat it so i think the big thing is you know i don't care if these guys come and tell me oh i can cast 100 feet well i want to know how far can you cast where you can get the leader to open into a 15 or 20 mile an hour wind all we need is 40 feet four zero three five 35 feet you know i don't need 80 feet where the leader collapses on itself and you know you don't see the fly and all these things so that's a big one um, another thing that i would have to tell you my, one of my biggest pet peeves is cast with control you know what i mean like don't go to the shooting range and empty a clip on a target shoot one time at the bullseye with purpose aiming at it choosing you know like i mean the difference with the bullseye is that you could shoot at it, right? And it doesn't matter how far the bullet goes, right? It goes just to a target. So obviously with fly fishing, it's different because you have to have distance as well as, you know, precision and accuracy. So it's not, it's like throwing a football, right? You know what I mean? It's, it's like you have to have where the person is standing or running, where the person's going to be and that distance to get it to them. 
So, you know, I hate it when I see people throwing and they lose the line in their left hand. You know, they just throw and they let their left hand off the line and just let it go fly. I'm just sitting there and I'm thinking to myself, I'm like, this guy is not fishing with control. This guy is not fishing with purpose. He's just like bombing one out there into oblivion and then trying to fumble and grab the line and all that stuff. Like, I want to see somebody, you know, that gets up there and fishes with purpose, you know? see the fish, watch how he's swimming, the speed is that he's swimming, you know, what angle is he swimming? I want to see, you know, someone that, that intersects the fish, get that, that leader in front of the fish and let the fly go from the left side or the right side of the fish's face and intersect him. A fly that lands right in front of the fish most of the time, unless you're out back, is not going to get eaten. You know, the key is to swim the fish, swim the fly through the fish's strike zone. That is the key. You want to swim it through the strike zone, not land it in the strike zone. So, you know, it's like if you really want to try and, and beat the curve on the fly tarpon game, you have got to practice distance control, accuracy, um, you know, getting your leader to open every single time so you have some sort of distance between you and the fish, and most importantly, making the first shot count. You know, I honestly believe if you're trying to sell something to somebody, I, I know that you, know, you have to keep knocking on the door even if they say no, but I think that your first chance is always your best chance, you know, and if that fish isn't on to you and he doesn't know what's going on, I think it's important to be able to sit there and, and take your time and make your first shot count because that's when you're going to be able to sell that fish on eating the fly better than the second, third, or fourth shot. Right on. So... This is always a fun question that I ask, especially the older guys. They love this question. Uh, we have a lot of lot of tarpon guys in our area. They fish straight fifty liters. You're talking a lot about leaders opening, and I, you know, I've heard both both sides of it. Yeah, you could put more pressure on the fish. You can catch it quicker. I don't know if that's particularly true. I'm assuming. I don't assume you to be a fifty straight fifty liter guy. Well, or are you? Yeah, no, I'm. I'm not. I am not. You what, know. What do you I, think the advantage and disadvantages well, are? Yeah, I learned. You know, I've learned some valuable lessons over the years. You know, one of my biggest guiding regrets of my entire career was tying an improper IGFA leader for a world record tarpon with Heidi. That you know, it was only a twelve pound, um, twelve pound. You know, uh, record that we were going to break, and the fish was only like three or four pounds over the actual record. It was like a seventy nine pound fish, so it wasn't like it was like we were caught some you know unbelievable fish, but still. The IGFA leader that I tied, the class tippet, has to be 15 inches in between the knots. Well, it was 15 inches in between the knots, but I included a bimini twist. And so that bimini twist was actually an additional knot. So it has to be a single strand, a 15-pound test, right? Of, of Not 15-pound test, a single strand that has to be 15 inches or longer in between the knots. So including the bimini twist in the class tippet, made it to where the leader was not IGFA leader and it nullified the whole oh, thing. Man. We killed the fish for no reason. I was dog cussed and MF'd across the entire, you know, probably fishing industry. And so that was one of the hardest things ever that happened to me throughout my career was having to stomach that, you know, for, for a long time and still to this day, you know, dealing with, you know, people hating on that. But, you know, all of that being said, um, I am a big proponent on IGFA leaders, and 
I have to tell you that, so straight 50, I mean, it's it's a slippery slope, right? Because when you're a guide, most of these people that you fish with have no chance of hooking a fish. So when they do hook one and you break them off on the hook set because you've got them using 12 or 16 pound test, you don't know if in the next three days that you're fishing with this guy, is if he is ever going to hook another fish again. So when you have straight 50, I understand the argument, right? You know, a lot of these guys, you know, you're not going to break a fish off on straight 50. You know, they think that you can fight them better, all these other things. Well, the problem is, is that when you're using straight 50, you might as well be drifting a crab at the bridge. You know, it, it's not very sporty. It's, I mean, yes, you still have to cast. Yes, the fish still has to eat the fly and you have to clear the line and all that stuff. But you know, first of all, you're just, you're not playing fair. I mean, you're, you're throwing rope at him, you know? Secondly, if that fish ends up getting uh, attacked by a shark, which happens often during tarpon season, you can't break the fish off. You could sit there and palm the reel on a tired fish and not break him off. And now all of a sudden you've got the fish on a leash and a shark gets him. And it's just, I, I don't think that it's right because at the end of the day, you could tie a 20-pound IGFA class tippet leader and you take 20-pound hard mason and you try to break it in your hands, you will cut the skin on your hands before that 20-pound breaks most of the time. Now, obviously, if you pull it really quick like a maniac, it'll snap. But if you take it and you gradually separate your hands and you try to pull 20-pound hard mason mono, I mean, most of the time, you can't break it. So my argument is, is like, look, okay, IGFA, I get it. Don't fish 10 pound. Don't fish eight pound. Don't fish, you know, all of these like whatever, you know, super, super light tippets. But at the same time, you know, fish the right lengths, you know, fish something that's, you know, at least 15 inches, you know, class tippet, you know, fish it where you have 12 inches from, you know, your blood knot down to the eye of the hook for your shock tippet. You know what I mean? Make sure that the leader's not longer than 15 feet, which usually isn't a problem, you know? But it's like that way, when you fish IGFA, you have a way to compare yourself to other people that are fishing IGFA. You know, if, if you're throwing a straight bubble leader, a straight 50-pound leader, what ends up happening? You know, some guy comes in and, yeah, oh, yeah, he caught two or three tarpon that day, but he's using straight 50. And meanwhile, you're out there and you're using 16-pound or 20-pound test, right? And, you know, it's it's totally different. A person that really wants to master the game and become like an Andy Mill, you know, one of these guys that's like looked up to as, you know, like one of the ultimate fly anglers for tarpon of all time, you know, he didn't do it because he just wanted to catch a lot of tarpon. He wanted to learn how hard can I pull on these fish with different tippet materials? You know, what techniques wear the fish down the best? Not, you know, let me tie a piece of rope to the end of my fly rod and horse this fish around. You, you know what I'm saying? So I just think that when you're a fly fisherman, you're a purist. You do it for, you know, the thrill, for the excitement, for the, the, the like the technicality of everything. If you wanted to do it any other way, you would just go soak a bait on the bottom. So if you're going to be a fly fisherman and you're going to do it like that, I think that the bubble leaders are questionable. I think that trying to use you know, a high level of tippet, whether it's, you know, 20 pound or whatever, you know, you got to do. I think that it's way more graceful than to sit there and tie a straight piece of 50 from your fly line and then end up putting yourself in a position where, you know, you might as well be soaking a bait. 
That's good. And as we just continue this podcast, are there any things, parting thoughts or, or things that you hope for this podcast that will come of it for the guide community? Oh, man, I don't have any hopes for the guide community, but I just hope at the end of the day, I just hope that any younger listeners that are, you know, reaching out and, and listening to this for purposes of being like, who is this guy and what does he do and how did he get to where he was today? I just hope that people know that no matter what happens in life or where you go or what you do, that you should always follow your passion because ultimately, whether I continue guiding for the rest of my life or whether I end up going and doing something else, the relationships that I've made with my customers who are super successful have educated me and have offered me positions and have taken me to places that I never would have been if I didn't follow my passion as a guide. But you also have to remember that you have to have that backup plan. So when you're young and you're 18 or you're in your early 20s and you're like itching to ditch everything in life and become a fishing guide, just remember that the water isn't going anywhere. The fish, you know, I mean, hopefully they're not going anywhere. We're working on, you know, doing a better job of all that stuff right now with our, you know, environment and whatnot. And I would just say, you know, don't uh, don't sell yourself short. Don't put yourself in a box where you only have to depend on fishing for the rest of your life. You know, try to make it to where you can branch out and you can, you know, get an education, whatever it might be before you start your guiding career. And then that way, if you end up getting burnout or you realize it's not for you, you always have something to fall back on instead of sitting there and feeling like you're trapped. That's good, man. Well, thank you so much for giving us some time and the, the great Keys hospitality. Yeah, we appreciate anytime. It. Appreciate it. Anytime, guys. God bless. Thank you for listening to the Captain's Collective. If you are digging this podcast, and let's be honest, if you've made it this far, we know that you are, please help us out by sharing. We have some awesome upcoming episodes queued up and ready to release, and we want to get the word out as fast as we can. I hope you guys had a great time. Thanks for the support. We will see you next time. This is the Captain's Collective. Hey guys, thanks for checking out the Captain's Collective podcast. Before we dive in, I just wanted to let you know about one of our sponsors, Nikon. Nikon is a trusted company when it comes to optics, and they make a wide range of products for the outdoors. From cameras to binoculars to hunting scopes, Nikon has earned a reputation for building great gear. What you might not know about Nikon is that Nikon engineers their products from the inside out and creates an optical system specific to the function of each product. And because Nikon is one of the few makers of optical glass, they have the unique advantage to specify the exact type of glass needed to optimize the performance of their product. For the water, I recommend the Ocean Pro series. They are powerful, fog resistant, feature a built-in compass display, and have a large exit pupil that makes holding steady in rough water easier. And like all Nikon products, they come with a lifetime guarantee. So make sure to check them out and give yourself the advantage. go out there and the fish are where you think they are, any one of these casts could be the bite. It's the most exciting fishing that I know right here at Hawks Cave. Oh, that's awesome. Experience the best saltwater fishing the world has to offer. Don't miss Thursdays with Saltwater Experience, brought to you by Golden Boat Lifts, every Thursday night from 7 to 10 p.m. Eastern on Waypoint TV, the destination for outdoor entertainment.
I'm Will Cooper, host of HuntStand's Make Your Mark podcast. For even more content, be sure to watch the original films from HuntStand Presents on the Waypoint TV channel every Tuesday at 10 p.m. Eastern. Visit waypointtv.com to learn more.